0: Welcome to Campaign Chemistry, where we pick the brains of creative alchemists, business wizards, and marketing geniuses behind the world's greatest brand. Susie Nam's career trajectory isn't the typical one of an ad agency executive. Rather than bouncing around to different top tier creative agencies before landing the gig, She was a journalist at George Magazine and the New York Times, as well as an urban planner in London. She's been with Droga 5 since its early days, rising through the ranks in her 14-year career there from an account director to chief operating officer and eventually to CEO. Now she's leading the agency through its integration with Accenture Song, adding the operational rigor to support large clients while maintaining the agency's misfit culture. In this episode, Susie chats about her personal experience as a Korean American female CEO and how that has helped shape her approach to talent and DEI at the agency. I'm your host, Allison Weisbrot, the editor of Campaign US, and you're listening to Campaign Chemistry. Hi, Susie. How are you? Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Oh, thank you for having
0: me, Allison. It's great to see you. Great to see you as well. So, I'm very excited to chat with you about all things Droga 5 and your career, which is really interesting. Um, I'm going to start there because you went from being a journalist, right? Covering politics and being a features editor at the New York Times. You have a background in urban planning and economics. So how did you end up at Droga 5? Talk about what what brought you to advertising after all those different experiences.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's definitely been a windy road, a good one, but very, I've had, I feel like a cat with nine lives. (laughs) I, um, I actually started, um, in university in photojournalism and I think I was the big fish in, in a small pond in my high school. And then I got to college and very quickly realized that I was deeply average. So pivoted to, uh, the written version of journalism, which, um, was a real home for me. Um, I, I've always found writing to be, um, kind of a good practice for me in general, but to be able to hone some technical skills around it was really exciting. I had visions of being an international reporter and all of that stuff. And when I graduated, um, I actually, at the time they had this Delta six pack of flights that you could get and, uh, through the shuttle and, I just decided I was going to move to New York and I went every single Friday. I went every single weekend, literally like a, like an old sitcom showed up on the doorstep at places and gave my resume to people, forced myself into informational. And I, you know, I think I was trying to be very, um, assertive in all of it, but it was also terrifying. But I just Mm -hmm. decided I was going to come to New York, talk to the New Yorker, New York Magazine, Village Voice at the time, all of them. And where I ended up was actually where I should have been, which was George Magazine, Those Old Enough to Remember. George Magazine at the time, but it, it was it was the hot flavor of the time. And um, it was kind of this enmeshing of Hollywood and the Beltway. Um, and JFK Jr. was the editor founder of it. He was uh, very wise and surrounding himself with lots of smart people. The staff was small. So I really got a lot of autonomy and I went really deep in the organization. Um, it was also the time where, you know, AOL was a big thing. I was coding in something called Rain Man and moderating forums was a really new frontier. And I did a lot of that too. But um, they sent me pretty quickly on the road for the presidential campaign. So in my first year living in New York, I was going to you know the democratic convention the republican convention in san diego and then in chicago i was partying with all these people it was like kind of a madame Tussauds wax museum i would say it was kind <laughs> which, of which campaign were you on um i was it was uh, the 96 election okay. so you know the it was literally driving across america following that campaign and um it it was an amazing time i met thousands of people on the road. And um, I did that for a few months. And on the road, I met some reporters also from the New York Times, and they recruited me over to, to start this thing called the the internet um, (laughs) for their publication. And a lot of the talk at the time was all of the publications trying to figure out how to cannibalize their business for growth and prepare themselves and future-proof themselves. So um, I went over, it was again, a very small upstart situation. And we started the AOL site. I was the editor of the AOL site. And we also launched the HTML property that that has grown to what it is today. And ironically is one of our clients now, the New York times. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of a full circle moment in lots of ways. I don't working. know if it's ironic.
0: Maybe they really liked you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, i w I've certainly been a subscriber for the entire time. Between, but, um, but yeah, it's been, it's been amazing to see how the product has evolved. And um, I'm just so proud to have any kind of history associated with them. But um but yeah, I went over to the New York Times. I was a features editor for the HTML platform and then editor for the AOL um, platform. I was there for a few years. And then uh, it was also during the tech boom in, in New York. And there were a lot of upstarts, little digital startups. And and there was a digital consultancy that was starting um, an office in London. So I moved out there, became part of the management team, did that for about 18 months. And it was a great way to, to be transported to a new country. I was actually at the time dating a British man and it was me and my job that brought him home. Oh, Um, look at that. Yeah. And then, uh, and I did that for a while and then, um, during that period of time, I also had this kind of intellectual itch. I always have grown up in cities, um, fascinated by them. My um, father moved to Jakarta, Indonesia. I'm Korean American in background, and he uh, was there. For, he was there for decades, and so I grew up packing my bags on the last day of school, going to Jakarta from Minneapolis, Minnesota, in a completely cotton wool wrap, wrapped suburban existence and then going to the heart of Jakarta, Indonesia for three months and then packing my bags, coming back and starting school. That was kind of the way I grew up. And so I had this very, uh, broad view of what reality was. Mm -hmm. Um, all the time I was kicking and screaming, wanting to work at the, you know, old Navy at the strip mall with the, (laughs) the rest of my friends. And they made me go to Jakarta, Indonesia, but I traveled all over Asia during that time too. And, um, I think what, What's fascinating about that period, too, and what uh, informed my kind of intellectual itch for cities is that how, how different realities, how the morphology of urban settings kind of thrive are a reflection of the social economic forces in a, in, a, in a city and in a business district. So I, on a whim, kind of applied to London School of Economics and got in. So I got a master's in their urban and regional planning program, Uh, went there for 18 months, got a master's degree, and then decided to stay and work Um, in in England. I I actually worked for the Ministry of Transportation in Birmingham. So I went Mm. up north. Um, was part of some regeneration that was happening around the Bull Ring, and for for Brits out there, they'll know what I'm talking about. But I think um, it was a real education for me. And as a foreigner going to London and studying urban planning, it was the best way to literally get under unearth this city. There were um, there's a law in London where you do an archaeological dig, and if you hit something that could be of historical significance, you have to shut down the the, the project. And and it turns into a dig. So I was going to digs all over the city uh, for parking lots, for shopping malls, for new buildings, for renovations. And and I remember when I went to that had perfectly preserved chandelier earrings that was a setting of a Roman bath. And wow. it had been buried in so many hundreds of feet of clay that it was, it looked like something Beyonce would wear, but it was wow. thousands of years old. It was, a, it was an amazing time to be there too, because it's turn of the century around 2000, I was there. And Britain isn't typically a flag-waving country in that way in, in the modern age. And so, it, but it was kind of a cool thing to be a Brit. And, and it was a real it was a it was a point of pride. Tony Blair was in office. It was a, a certain period. so i I was really fortunate to kind yeah. of be there during that time and the young British artist scene and Tracy Emin and uh, Damien Hurst all that whole period of time was really such fun. It really imprinted quite a bit on me on on how sociological and cultural factors can all kind of come together and drive culture. So, um, but I love my time there. And then after about four years, uh, I got married there and I got homesick basically. And I'm Mm -hmm. from Minneapolis, came back, worked for a small design shop. And then I, um, I worked at Fallon, which I still have a very warm place in my heart for it for many reasons but um it was an incredible time there Uh, it was also a a time where they had done bmw films and david lubars was running in and um there were lots of people pat was working every day it was an incredible time to be there Um, and then we moved to chicago for a short time and and i actually took 18 months off after i had my first son miles Um, I was always someone who thought, oh my God, 12 weeks of leave. God, what am I going to do with all it's that? It's not enough. Yeah. And then you realize well, it's not enough. Then, yeah. And then I, <laughs> the second I was always like, oh, I'll come back to work early. I don't need all that time. And the second I had miles, I thought, too bad I'm never going back to work. <laughs> um, and I just fell really hopelessly in love. And I needed to feel satiated uh, around motherhood. It was really mind bending that time. And mm. I look at women now who are able to take six months or more. And I'm, I, I think that's, that's the beginning of the right zone. I can't even believe that people are coming back to work or were coming back to work much earlier than that. I can't believe I did it.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. No, there's definitely, I would love to hear about, I mean, we can, we can get into this after you kind of finish your, how you ended up with Droga 5, but um, definitely would love to hear about how that's shaped your... Yeah. to, to yeah. talent policies.
1: Yeah. So I, well, I'll, I'll quickly get to it. and And after 18 months of going to Bubbles Academy with Miles, I was <laughs> satiated and I needed to talk to other adults. And it was scary coming back to work. I hadn't written a deck. I hadn't thought about anything. And it's both reassuring and also maybe not that motivating that it wasn't that hard. Not mm-hmm. a lot of in the 18 months I came back. But um, it was Sarah Thompson and Johnny Bauer who found me. Um, I went to just a few interviews in New York. I knew I had to come back here first and foremost. And um, she was on maternity leave and hired me. And it was an amazing time. It was 30 some odd people in a very smelly room. And it was very collegiate on the one hand. And and there was a lot of camaraderie. Um, It felt like very organized chaos and I think what Sarah and I did together was try to find the right alchemy of technical acumen and a sophisticated business environment so that the right amount of chaos could thrive there Mm. and and it was that kind of enmeshing of all of that along with Johnny being the best in the business really around Mm -hmm. strategy was a certain planetary alignment in that period of time. And it's been pretty high growth since um, people ask me how I stayed here so long. I'm I'm up, coming up to my 14th year anniversary at Droga, yeah. which is like dinosaur years for most, most people. But, um, you know, I've stayed because I literally had a different job every year. I didn't need to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Our growth was somewhere between 30 to 40 percent for eight years straight. So there were some years we were hiring more people than we had on staff. Um, yeah, it was a very it was a very exciting time. It was a very high growth time for us as individuals and for the company. and And then we kind of leveled up. We became more sophisticated as a business, took on more complicated asks, and and hopefully still had our kind of punky. Subversive vein in in how we delivered it, but we were always strategic throughout. So mm-hmm. I've always been proud of how we kept our soul. Yeah, our
0: no, it's an amazing story, and I think you know, just sort of hearing more about your background, it 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 makes sense. Like you seem like you're just a very curious person, and that is something that you need in advertising, right? Like you need to understand people and you need to have like a worldly view and sort of understand what's going to resonate and be curious about that. Talk about like the early days at Droga 5. I know there's, I feel like there's a lot of folklore around like David Droga and like this agency, like this independent agency sort of just like coming out of nowhere and and skyrocketing to the top and a lot's changed since then. But I guess what was it like in the beginning?
1: Um, It was... It was incredible. It was exhausting. It was um, a lot of laughter, a lot of joy. Um, And I think that more than anything, we had a lot of space for misfits. Um, I think part of the reason I've always been attracted to New York and bigger cities but particularly Droga is that it's always been a home for weirdos, um, and 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 I mean that only in the in the highest regard because I'm one too, uh, and I think um, it, there is this marriage that happens at Droga between the the nerdy side of every discipline. I always say we're the thinking men or women's version of strategy, production, account, what have you. And on the other side of it is this deep desire to make every opportunity and every brand a category of one. Like how do we subvert this entire ask? How do we write our own briefs? How do we reorient the entire climate to to work in our favor? How do we rig it in our favor for the ideas we want? you know, we have a pretty good batting average with that, and I think that started in our very early days. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had people who were naive enough not to be scared. Uh, we had a lot of international people within our ranks from all over the world, and um, and I and I think we we had it was a transient place during that time too. A lot of people were. Yes, coming to make the best work of their lives, but also using it as a launching pad mm-hmm. for themselves. And so it was, I, I thought, a fair exchange um, during that time with a lot of people. And um, I feel also very good that we've had a ton of boomerangs, as we call them. A lot of people that have come back and um, gone out to see the wide world and want to come Back home, so I always think that's a good legacy for us. I also Definitely. appreciate when people go to other places and I hear how they're doing, and they credit Droga5 and their experience here for defining. I think that's a that's a good kind of imprint we leave on the industry mm-hmm. versus a negative one. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was as crazy as people think, and it was also <laughs> a lot nerdier than people think. Right. Is how I would encapsulate it. It was a very very. There was a lot of deep thinking involved in what seemed like just breakthrough creative ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, David often kind of credited Johnny as um, kind of being the secret weapon Mm. in the way that we, the alchemy of how we brought about thinking. Um, And Sarah and I tried to basically set the right circumstances for the chaos to thrive. Yeah, Uh, well... rigorous about the operations and the business of what you're doing and build deep, um, sustaining client relationships and trust is, is the third leg in the, in the stool really. Well, you seem to have pulled it off. I mean,
0: since you started there, Droga 5 grew from 35 people to 500 people. And now you have, you know, long-term clients like the New York Times, you, were acquired by Accenture not too long ago. So I guess for you looking back, like what's been the biggest change and then what's sort of been, how, what's been the way that you've been most able to hang on to that magic of the early days or the culture?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, early on, I think in our quote, I would call it like our adolescence. Um, A few years after I started, we, we chose to pitch Prudential and I think people were kind of like scratching their heads, like, why would drug five do that? Um, and, and I think for us, it was the, the challenge of proving to the world that we weren't just flavor of the month, that we had real substance, that we could take on st- strategic challenges, build a platform that would last year over year. And we did. And on the other side of it, we won titaniums for years off of Prudential's work. So I think that was a real uh, inflection point in our growth. I think another one that we've taken on, all the while taking on the things that were probably more predictable. We always used to say in New Business that clients or prospects that were thinking of moving the needle like 0.002% aren't going to come looking for Droga. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they tend to be seeking meaningful change or trying to be a category of one. And, and we attracted those types of CMOs and those types of brands. So we always had the right pH balance. Even when we went for things like Prudential, we had, uh, JP Morgan Chase at the moment. And, and we have six lines of business with them all the while trying to do things that are subverting the norm, Mm -hmm. pushing the envelope, not only of the category, but of the industry. So we're, we're maintaining that urge to disrupt throughout all of it. But, but I think we've had to build Um, necessary complexity within our disciplines so that we can do both the full funnel experience and be a real partner to our clients. They're not looking to overly fragment and have 12 partners. They want fewer partners going deeper. Mm. So we had to kind of meet them at the table on all of that stuff. So I think, I think I would like to think that our culture has maintained itself and all of the kind of qualitative parts of it, but we've, definitely brought in more sophistication and and more bureaucracy in the right way so that we could build the ranks. I think the good example of that is strategy. We started with brand strategy only, more conventional, and it's expanded to communication strategy, media strategy, and data strategy, like most agencies have to. Yeah. So talk about
0: how the Accenture um, acquisition sort of helped you be able to add that extra operational rigor as well as like grow into new capabilities. I know that, you know, there's Accenture Interactive, which David is now running. And then there's Droga 5 and there's Accenture Song. Clarify a little bit about like who does what and what you guys all sort of enable each other to do. Yeah, good
1: question. I think um, I, I think there's more clarity to be driven there for sure. The um, So firstly, Accenture Interactive was the old name before david there's no accenture i should know that (laughs) it doesn't exist anymore no it's fair enough i think there is a a bit of ambiguity on that so that's gone away and it has been replaced with accenture song which um david did in an effort last year to consolidate the number of brands that required standing up across the network and it is a mission to consolidate and and kind of be in some ways an anti-holding company and kind of operate much more as one, um, not have competing p and essentially, um, or be put up for pitch against each other. We wanted to kind of operate as one and ideally bring, the both, bring all the right aspects and be fit for purpose for every ask across regions. So he did that globally. Um, so that's the first thing. The, the other thing is that uh, the acquisition of Droga for Accenture is based on this hypothesis on both sides of the table that in this media climate, it requires a level of acumen delivery um, and depth of understanding in both media technology and content at scale that I think most agencies are endeavoring to do and perhaps lagging it a little bit. And Accenture actually does. And so it's it's looking for a level of delivery scale, uh, kind of um, ability to stand things up for clients that is pretty robust. Mm. Um, and I think the, the union between the two is getting tighter every day. I would be lying to say that it was uh, a perfect fit from the from day one, I think that it took a lot of education on both sides. There's a lot I didn't understand about what I call big Accenture and then Accenture Song. As an organization, it was fairly foreign for me, the consulting world. And so there was a learning curve for our management team and understanding, oh, interesting, you have a whole unit dedicated to, for instance, retail. Thousands and thousands of people Globally, who know absolutely everything about the retail space and, and DTC and what's pivoting for vertical retailing examples like that, that I think those subject matter experts bringing to bear for the right circumstances is not something most agencies can do. Mm. Um But the technology side of the equation is really important, too. They have hubs for sustainability, hubs for um, metaverse that David is leading. There's also uh, the whole true hardware and tech stack part of the business that, definitely speak a different language than I do. (laughs) But if we can build the right connective tissue starts to create a bridge towards what clients are actually faced with. I think what they do is they they siphon off a part of their brain when they're talking to agencies. And I think increasingly, if we're going to deepen and be a real strategic partner, we need to be able to occupy a bigger portion of the conversation credibly. Mm-hmm. So if we bring a partner from Accenture and sit at the table and not only talk about personalization and CRM but also what the data lake and data warehouse needs to be in order to support said system, it starts to be a comprehensive full-form thought that I think we're striving for. Right. right you can now. actually
0: enable these things versus just, you know, concepting them and talking about them, right? Yeah. So... I guess like talk about then obviously that's Accenture then between song and Droga 5, is there an ambition? I, I don't think there's an ambition to get rid of the Droga 5 brand. I mean, I don't, obviously it's no. a great brand. So talk about how yeah. those two fit together.
1: Yeah. It's a good question because I also, you know, um, I wouldn't recommend it, but we actually launched two Droga 5 offices during COVID, Uh <laughs> Not the ideal circumstances to it, but we've managed to make them a, a burgeoning success and I, I think um I bring that up to say that every market is completely different. Uh, and North America happens to be one where Droga 5 has the reputation, the credibility, the history, and the context to lead in the market, both for originating relationships, maintaining it, and having the, the breadth of talent to be able to deliver. Um, Song is a is an incremental partner in that in north america and they are building every day more and more ability to be able to click into uh, circumstances where we can both pitch together mm-hmm. as well as be kind of the the, the powering of a lot of the, the thesis that we just talked about. But I would say that in North America, Droga 5 remains the leading brand. Mm-hmm. There are other markets where Accenture Song is the credible, much stronger with clients. Tokyo, Japan is one market in particular where they have a Indisputable reputation there, huge mm. business there, and Droga5 serves to to be um, an interesting part of the equation for certain clients that are going direct to consumer and want certain types of work with them. So they're much more of a almost a secondary player and complementary player um, in Sao Paulo, where I work really closely with the team there. It's it's breaking into a different part of the C suite in a meaningful way. They have CTO, CIO, CEO conversations and deep relationships. But the CMO is one that has been eluding them in a consistent way. Mm -hmm. And Droga5 being there in such a creative culture has really broken into a lot more of those conversations. So it's a comprehensive conversation. So the role of Droga5 in different markets is very different. Mm -hmm. I think that's true of lots of global strategy that happens for networks.
0: So would you say in in North America, like Droga5 is the leading brand, like you're the one who's pitching does song pitch in North America or is it more of a add on?
1: Yeah, Song pitches in North America and will do much more and more. Um, they're in a building phase as well as have a tendency to support their existing Fortune 50 clients that they have from Accenture. Mm. Where you know we're, we're really thrilled to be pitching things in the you know five to fifteen million dollar range, and they have clients and, and relationships that are in the hundreds of millions. And Song has historically uh, been supporting those relationships. And doing the communication layer of that so they haven't really needed to pitch mm-hmm. it's kind of rained for them in a different way and we need to pivot that to be much more direct to market facing and that's the phase that we're in and and we're fortunate that they can kind of work in concert with droga five here
0: yeah yeah um and i'm curious how how involved is david now in the day-to-day of of droga
1: you know it vacillates he's he's always kind of one text away from most of us on the management team um he even has uh maintains an office here in wall street um that he can't let go of, uh, even when he's in the ivory tower over there in One Manhattan <laughs> West. Um, so I think there's a part of him that will always hold a place for Droga5, and and there are still pitch opportunities where he's an important player in the conversation, an important part of the relationship he maintains a very deep relationship on our meta relationship on JP Morgan Chase. So he he does. In, in certain circumstances, because they're almost legacy and and part of the growth strategy for Song, but we have a pretty strong management team here who takes care of I would say ninety nine percent of things. Yeah, um, there are moments where we need him because we want to be interlinked in the right, right way. We have shorthand with him, um, and and I think there's lots of things that he wants to be kind of riding the future together mm-hmm. especially with this management team and exploring new opportunities with us so I would mm-hmm. say not in the day-to-day of the business is he really really in it um he's much more at the global song level yeah um, that's that's 99 of his day but mm-hmm. our one c- crossover is is here and there he's yeah. still got an eye on you guys <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah.
0: so I want to just circle back to um The beginning of our conversation, you sort of started talking about, you know, when you had your first child and um, realized that, you know, the leave period wasn't maybe as long as, as needed. And I I guess just like overall, I mean, you sort of, you, you've really risen through the ranks at Droga 5, right? Like you were an account director and now you're the CEO. You're a Korean American woman, as you said, like, what were some of the barriers you faced in, in getting to where you are today. And, and I guess like what advice would you have for, for other women looking to do the same in the industry?
1: Yeah, it's a big question. It is Uh, more appropriately had over adult drinks, Allison, but I'll go (laughs) for it. Um, But then the people can't hear your answer. (laughs) Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, you know, I've, um, I've come to a realization that, um, much of, what I spend my time thinking about now and what, what the thrust of what I try to do is to bring the kind of DEI portion of myself and of the broader conversation into the main. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And what I mean by that is that I think that I had always compartmentalized myself when I showed up to work. I think there was parts that I felt like I had to protect that wasn't, even though it's plainly in view, I, I thought as an Asian person I was I was sufficiently hiding it whether it was the way that I speak, the style I speak, the words I use. there is a dominant culture, a white dominant culture that comes through in my in the way that I was raised, where I went to school and that is essentially the language of business in America. So I had um, enough in my background and the way that I grew up and what, I was trained to do to be able to get by. I was passing for a Mm -hmm. long time. And I think what I've done more recently in the past eight to 10 years is realize there is a finding my true voice is finding a way to do both. I can speak the language of the dominant culture and always, always find the right critical reason to bring in other sides of myself and for women and people of color. And I've always felt that that was something that had to come into the main, that we had to make it a business problem, not a nice to have. And I think that that's taken a long time for me to realize personally as a, as a working woman and mother, but I think for the workplace, it, it informs everything that I think about in business decisions. So mm-hmm. how we cast our teams, what's the alchemy of people for certain brands, how do we set the circumstances so people really want to tell their stories in the room, even though it feels like a very high-pressure environment. And and that differentiates us. It makes us more human and it makes us more authentic in ourselves. And I think the more we can do to build that kind of psychological safety so people are themselves, that's the work. It's hard. It changes all the time. I think I've made progress on a certain period of time and then we have turnover and there's a whole new suite of people that come in and the alchemy changes again. So it's forever work. It's unlike you know, launching a campaign, and I think um, I've realized also as an individual that I um, I, I felt that everything was a risk uh, when I was younger. And if I could speak to a younger version of myself, I would, I would tell her that most of it is fake Mm. Um, and, and, and the things that I found paralyzing in the moment I think I always knew what the right answer was I always did my homework I was always prepared but I was petrified in the room and I always felt people were smarter than me in the room and I think the more that I can puncture that um, is a good use of my power in my position right now. And hopefully I'm doing it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think just by example, you're doing it, but I mean, in, in addition to sort of like giving people that psychological safety and like just representing what's possible for people, like, are there any specific like policies or, or workplace things you've changed just being in a position of, of CEO that maybe yeah. other people wouldn't have noticed?
1: Yeah. I think that, you know, Early on when we were thinking about, and I think other agents we, were doing the same, is thinking about what we were talking about earlier around maternity and paternity leave. And I remember distinctly there was a period of time we were kind of all in the same age range in, in management. I, and I was pregnant with my second child. And there were other people who were also in their breeding stage, let's say, <laughs> and uh, both men and women. And the men were hesitant to take the time. And we really made a concerted effort, not to bully them, but to remind them that they are also setting the pace for those who are watching them. If they don't take time off, men won't take time off in the in the agency. The other thing is that taking time off is not only being there to witness your partner, not have enough time for to take a shower, be so exhausted, deal with the medical and physical pain of that time and and it's it's an education I can't give them. Right? It's an, a level of empathy and support that makes them a different kind of human being. The other part of it is that they feel the, the professional implications of coming back to work after having a gap. That's what women face every day. And that's what women don't really want to talk about. Wait a minute, my performance review is pushed back 6 months. Why? Does that mm-hmm. mean I'm 6 months behind someone who sat right next to me and I'm just as good as him? And 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 that's what needs to be normalized. It's not the leave itself so much as the the implications of taking a pause in your career and what that does and what that does to parity, what that does to a sense of progress. Um, and and we as an organization are trying to get ahead of that, um, doing a lot of things to make sure that the re-onboarding of people who are on leave, men, women, what have you, are, are, are as smooth as possible. Performance reviews are done preemptively and not when they come back. It's not causing a delay. And I'm proud to say that a lot of the women who are in leadership positions, a, a good chunk of them were actually promoted while on leave. I yeah. was promoted why suddenly? leave? Um, and I think it takes that type of leadership and, and, and insight to be able to do that.
0: Mobilize yeah. Up. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think it's a huge reason that women drop out of the workforce and advertising specifically, right. Because they fall behind, can't catch up and it needs right. to be normalized. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about any upcoming work that you're excited about at Droga 5 that we should keep our eyes peeled for.
1: Um, yeah. yeah, for talk sure. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the uh, you know, the biggest one we're kind of um, knee deep on is, and, and hasn't been launched quite yet, is LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, you know, they've been, um, they've never really done a full-blown brand platform. They've done campaigns here and there. We've, uh, we pitched that last year. We've been in development for the past uh, six, eight months now. We just got back from a shoot. And the work is really meant to be an ambition that's like a five-year plan. Um, and the the insight that we've gotten to in that was such, a, I know we always say it's a cliche, it's a partnership with a client, but the lines were pretty permeable between us when we came to this, arrived at this idea. and um, and, and it's meant to be around leveling the playing field for everyone and how LinkedIn as a property kind of um, disrupts the privilege that's inbuilt when going after opportunities um, and how the tools, the people, what those people know and give you access to are really an agent for change. And I think they're at the center of the conversation right now because the definition of what work and productivity is up for debate, where you work, how you work, what productivity is, and, and, and how outcomes and KPIs should be measured. Like, all of that is up for grabs in many ways. Um, and, and I think the pacing of that, how LinkedIn shows up and ruminates on things like the idea of productivity, the idea of belonging, they are a group of really deep-thinking, considerate, empathetic people. And I think they really want their... Um, their corner of the internet to be a positive space and they yeah. do quite a lot to to make that happen um they can't control everything they are a platform after all but i think that they endeavor in their product development to do that and i think i'm excited about the work that's to come um yeah. and, and and the platform that we're launching with them very soon yeah. yeah
0: well when you think when you're working on a campaign like that like how are you thinking about doing the future of work at your own company like how are you approaching that balance right now
1: yeah, I'm um I was talking to someone about this the other day too, that, you know, I'm not a preservationist. I don't I don't think that seeing everyone in their cubicles sitting in an open space plan five days a week is making us better or stronger. Do I think that the pendulum needed to swing back from fully remote to some degree? Yes. But that middle zone is real ambiguous. And I think what it has challenged our thinking on during that remote period of time around the idea of what people are able to do, what people need in terms of thinking and to be able to produce in a different way, what feed and nourishes them, um, and how to regenerate in a week's time to, to to fortify yourself to get to the next week has been really enlightening. Mm-hmm. I want to take a lot of those lessons on board. I think there's a third way to work that we still have not fully cracked yet. And I don't think it's a silver bullet for all leadership and all, all companies, but I know for sure that we're better and feel safer when we can see each other across the table, when there are certain types of conversations happening, especially around creativity. I think that intimacy bonds us. Um, I think you can take that and travel and do remote afterwards, but I think there is a foundational part of it that is required. Um, but that shouldn't write the map of how your relationship proceeds. Mm-hmm. And I think so long as we maintain that flexibility but tether ourselves to some degree of in-person so I can see the whites of your eyes and we can kind of make pinky promises around certain things, it it, it is the kind of boundaries we need for creativity yeah. to thrive, I think. So I, we haven't cracked it. The, that's the first thing I would say is that I don't have a perfect answer, but I am – really motivated by what we've learned um how introverts contribute differently. We're a show horse business. So I think that's been a really enlightening part of it too. Just the chat bar uh, in in meetings has been a very interesting way to change the tempo of meetings that, you know, I'm not a natural extrovert either. I feel like Mm -hmm. I've been contorted into one, but my natural state is an introvert. So I I think things like that are really a good challenge to our mindset and what the dominant has been for in, in corporate America too long
0: I agree I think that no one's cracked it yet but I really hope people take the learnings of the past couple of years and apply them because it seems like yeah. already some don't want to so
1: I know especially in this kind of economic pressure but yeah it, yeah, um, it actually exasperates the problem I think so. I know well <laughs>
0: we'll end it on a positive note no
1: I know I know
0: Susie thank you so much for joining me it was great to chat with you um yeah. And hopefully we'll, we'll catch up soon.
1: Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for having me, Allison. It's great chat. That's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for listening and
0: we'll see you next week. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to Campaign Chemistry on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.